the God that we've come to worship today, uh, calls himself the God of hope, right? In our kind of theme passage in Romans 15, he calls himself the God of hope, and he desires, from we learned, you know, that his people, us, would abound in hope, abound in hope, that we would be full of hope. And uh, out of that hope, the Bible says, uh, joy and peace will come into our lives. When we allow hope to have the place that God wants it to have in our lives, uh, we'll find ourselves more joyful and more peaceful. And those are two things that, you know, people look all over to try to find joy and peace. And uh, here God says, listen, if you'll grab hold of what I'm laying out in front of you and put your hope in me, uh, you'll find that your life will begin to be marked by joy and peace. And I think this is such an important thing that God desires for us uh, because in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, Peter writes, uh, well, let me just read what he says. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. It's like the Bible expects, and this verse always convicts me, it's like the Bible expects that our hope would be such a a marker on our lives that other people would notice and they would start asking about it. Like, what's with you? You know, you're facing the same problem that I'm facing, but you've got your head up and I've, you know, I'm depressed over this whole mess. But you're facing the exact same thing, you know. How is it that you can be so optimistic? How is it that you can have a peace that passes understanding? The way I understand what's happening to me, I mean, I'm just depressed. You know, and here God is saying, listen, you guys, always be ready. When people ask you, what's the reason for your smile? What's the reason for your optimism? What's the reason for your peace? What's the reason behind your joy? God's saying, always be ready to give them an answer. When they ask, well, I always feel convicted because I'm like, when's the last time anybody asked me? And I don't think he's talking about Christians asking each other. We kind of notice it in each other, right? We're like, wow, you know, you're handling this death of your spouse really well. And, you know, I'm proud of you. And, you know, it's obvious the spirit of God is helping you through this and so on and so forth. But I think he's talking about people in the world who notice that we are so hopeful, it changes everything about the way we live in our current lives, in the present. I think, um, you know, God doesn't just give us all this information about the future to satisfy our curiosity. I think he wants it to affect, you know, the way that we live. And I think sometimes people avoid giving serious thought to uh, biblical prophecy because they say, well, you know, This just isn't relevant to my everyday life. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you ask God, he would say just the opposite. If you let me fill you with faith, hope, and love, it will change everything about your everyday life. And I think we understand that when it comes to faith, and we understand it when it comes to love. But when it comes to hope and being optimistic about the future in the midst of a world that increasingly becomes pessimistic about the future, Uh, we would really stand out. We would really know, like, hey, listen, don't limit your future to the confines of just this life. Don't you know what God has prepared for us on the other side? And that would change, you know, so many things about us. Uh, I think the more sure we are about the future, the more inspired 
we live and the more purposeful we live and the less anxious we end up being. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in uh, writing to the Corinthian church, said in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, 9 and 10, he said, look, no eye has ever seen, uh, no ear has ever heard, nor the heart of man isn't even able to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even begin to imagine how great it's going to be, right? But look at the next verse. These things God has revealed to us. He hasn't revealed them to everybody. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't understand that there's a future beyond this life. The world doesn't sink its hooks into the promises of God, but we get it because the Spirit of God, for God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, you know, and so on. Uh, The 14th verse says this, the natural person, the non-Christian, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. You try to explain this to an unbeliever about heaven and what's coming and about, you know, the, the rapture of the church and Jesus coming back and all these things and so forth. And they're looking at you like you've got, you know, three eyes. They're just like, what's wrong with you, you know? Um, it's kind of uh, interesting just to flesh out in everyday life these truths that God reveals to us. And so we've learned from the two Thessalonian letters Uh, that were written to Christians who uh, didn't understand God's plan for the future and uh, had their uh, ideas about the future challenged, uh, that God has actually decreed, uh, according to Daniel, God has decreed seven years at the end of this age, which will bring to a conclusion human living as we're used to it, as we know about it. It's not going to go on forever, but there's a defined end, a seven-year period of time, and in that seven years, a number of events will take place, uh, one of which is the removal of Christians out of the world before the judgment of God, you know, comes down. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, you know, Paul writes to them in the the first uh, book, uh, and then... um, The fifth chapter, he says, look, you know, God has not destined us for wrath. There's a day when God's wrath is going to come against everything that's wrong, against all the effects of sin, against all the wickedness of people, and against the people who are evil, and so on and so forth. And God is going to lift us out of here before all of that happens. Why? Because we're not destined for God's wrath. Not that we don't deserve it but because Jesus took that on the cross for us. You know, just think about all the dumb thoughts you've had or the dumb things you've done or the sinful things you've done. And God, how much he hates that, our three times holy, holy, holy God. And instead of coming after you and making you pay for that, he put Jesus on the cross, put your bad on Jesus and took his wrath out on his only begotten son so that you and I could be free. I mean, it's too good. You know, I've, a lot of people have a hard time even believing that that could actually be true. And then we saw, you know, uh, in Revelation chapter 20 that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be this thousand-year period of time on the earth, Revelation chapter 20, where Jesus will reign over all the nations. And it'll be kind of like a going back to the Garden of Eden type of experience. 
you know? And uh, how exciting would it be to be a part of that, you know? And then um, uh, we saw through the scriptures, there's a number of places, a lot of places, all through the Old Testament, where this golden age, you know, of the wolf and the lamb lying down together and all, everything's working out and people are going to Jerusalem to get wisdom and, you know, uh, living by the uh, dictates of God and, and so on. And so uh, it's kind of like, you know, we have an anchor. Uh, when you become a Christian, it's like you throw out your anchor and it lands in heaven. You know, uh, Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about those of us who have fled to Jesus for refuge have an anchor of our souls and it's hope. Hope becomes the anchor of our souls because the anchor is locked into heaven and it's like God is pulling us, you know, through life. And we know where our destiny, we know where we're going to land, we know where our anchor is, and it enables us to deal with all the waves that come our way. Uh, the Pew Research Center in, in 2021 um, did a survey uh, that asked uh, how many people tried to figure out how many people actually believe in heaven and hell, 1921, so, uh, 19, 2021. And... Um, it was pretty interesting, I thought. Um, according to that survey just two years ago, 73% of Americans say that they believe in heaven. 73%. Um, if you pull out the age bracket between 18 and 29, you drop the, to the younger age bracket, uh, it drops 10 points. Only 63% of 18 to 29-year-olds believe that there's a heaven. And if you take men out of the mix and you kind of ask men versus women, uh, there's a 10% less chance that men will believe in heaven than women. Okay, so, the, however, the statistic that got to me in this survey uh, is that 37% of people who are totally unaffiliated with any religion, any church, any faith at all, 37% of them believe in heaven or according to this survey, anyway. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible says the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, uh, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, uh, he says he's made everything beautiful in, his, in its time. And also, God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity into people's hearts, but he's done it in such a way that you can't figure it out on your own, what God is up to in creating us and having us live here in our birth and in our death and, and what comes next. Um, the wisest man who ever lived. It's kind of telling us, I think, that... Um, uh, we have this kind of instinctive belief in the afterlife, uh, but we ourselves uh, are limited in our ability to comprehend all that God has planned for us, right? We have to depend on God revealing it to us. And for that, we have to become Christians where God's spirit enters into us so that we can understand his word. And then God is happy to reveal to us where we came from, where we're going, why we're here, and so on. We're reliant on him and his revelation. 
And that's exactly what he wants to do through his word and through his spirit, wants us to be able to understand our future and what he has in store for us. And so when we take the Bible, God tells us, I think, very clearly, uh, there are only two, etern- uh, two alternatives for eternity, heaven and hell. There's only two alternatives for the future, for our eternal future, heaven and hell. And can I suggest to you uh, this morning that our lives here on earth don't make sense without a resolution in eternity, without a resolution in either heaven or hell. And uh, I hope you'll understand what I mean as we go on. But heaven and hell are as opposite as it can get, right? Heaven is very, very, very good, and hell is very, very, very bad, according to the scriptures. And we're familiar with opposites, right? Um, We know the difference. If there's an up, there's a down, right? If there's light, there's darkness. If there's positive, there's negative. If there's truth, there's lies or untruth. If there's righteousness, there's unrighteousness. And the Bible says there is a heaven and there is a hell. And they are as opposite as you can possibly imagine. More than we can probably imagine. So Jesus told a story about how our lives are going to be resolved on the other side of this life. And uh, again, I think this is a huge contributor to hope. But um, in the life to come, and I think this is uh, probably one of the single most important passages in the Bible, uh, one, because it comes from the lips of Jesus, and uh, two, because it talks about what happens to us, you know, after we die. And you're probably familiar with this passage. It's in Luke chapter 16. And uh, beginning at verse 19, Jesus tells uh, this story. And here's what he says, starting at verse uh, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay? So that's a picture. Two different people in life, right? A rich guy and a guy named Lazarus. And uh, when we think about those two people, one lived in luxury, one was a beggar. Uh, One was probably uh, pretty impressive and one was pretty unimpressive. Uh, One was pampered and the other was sick and hungry and homeless. Opposites. They were opposites in life. So what happens to them is they both die. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And uh, you have two different deaths, right? There's no mention of a a funeral or a burial for Lazarus. He's just carried to Abraham's side. Uh, His body, uh, as was the custom then, was probably thrown into the Valley of Gehenna, where those folks uh, would be tossed. Uh, But his soul, you know, was escorted to Abraham's side, Father Abraham. And uh, you could just imagine where Abraham might be uh, on the other side of this life. 
Now, the rich guy has a funeral, the Bible says, so he was probably buried, if you will. And um, when you think about it, um, I imagine that the death of the rich guy spread like wildfire through the town. It was probably on the evening news on ABC in Jerusalem. And uh, I imagine that uh, people came from far and wide to uh, uh, share eulogies of praise for this rich guy. Uh, and uh, maybe he owned a company and employed a lot of people and whatever. Um, but uh, I, I bet, right, I've done quite a few funerals, and I bet that after he died, uh, there were a lot of people who argued over his estate, and uh, everybody wanted a piece of it and so forth. But anyway, both of them died, and uh, here's what it says. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. He thinks he's still in the other life. You know, he thinks he's still the boss of Lazarus. He's like telling Abraham what to do. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. So uh, it's kind of interesting when you uh, read these verses to think about these two people on the other side of this life, uh, because uh, they're not just two different people in life, but they're two different people after they die. And uh, when we see this, and again, remember, this is straight off the lips of Jesus, and uh, I would tell you that Jesus told a lot of parables, right, a lot of stories like this. However, not in one single parable ever did Jesus name a person. This is the only story where Jesus actually names a person in the story. His name was Lazarus. It's not the Lazarus of John chapter 11 that Jesus brought back from the dead. This is a different Lazarus, but this is the only story where Jesus names somebody. So I'm wondering, and uh, you know, I'm not definitive about it, but I'm wondering if Jesus was in the town where everybody would know who the rich man was and that he was talking about an actual situation where these two people would be known by everybody. And um, you know, because if you could just go back to um, uh, verse 14 here, uh, Jesus is talking to a particular group of people, Pharisees. And listen to what, it, what the Bible says in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. Why? Because their theology went something like this. If you're rich and you're blessed, it must mean God is for you. And if you're poor and a beggar and the dogs are licking your sores, it must mean God is against you. Kind of infantile theology, if you will. Right? And Jesus tells this story, and he makes it about money because that's the people that he's talking to. And they're very offended because it challenges their whole thought. That's why I'm saying that your life and my life do not make sense until they're reconciled on the other side of this life where they are either rewarded or punished for what we did or didn't do over the course of our lifetime. And that's why the scriptures talk about in 1 Corinthians, you know, rewards, and uh, inheritances and so forth in heaven. God is a generous God. But it doesn't come to us necessarily in this life. And can we have a hope? Can we trust God enough to know, I'm willing to suffer here in order to be blessed there. 
I'm willing to sacrifice here like Jesus came and sacrificed before he was resurrected and came to sit on the right hand of his father. Is that okay with me? If that's God's plan for me, is that okay with me? And so again, this is off the lips of Jesus. The guy's name is Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus, the beggar from Palestine, is hanging out with Father Abraham in a place, uh, according to this passage, of comfort. It's a place of consciousness, right? It's not just like, you know, in the la-la land. It's conscious. Uh, it's a place of provision. He's got water. The rich guy doesn't, you know? Uh, it's a place of companionship. Uh, Abraham defends Lazarus, as you keep reading this. And uh, it's a place of love. And um, we learn that Lazarus got there in this passage uh, by an escort of angels. And it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, in order for us to get from earth to heaven, it's a pretty long ways, right? Uh, but this heaven is a place. Remember Jesus in John 14? Jesus says, you know, I'm going to prepare what? A place. Heaven is a place. And there's consciousness, and there's, you know, and, and these things are real. There are three heavens talked about in the scriptures. Uh, and it's important when we're reading the Bible to ask ourselves, well, which heaven are we talking about? So that we can not can get confused. The first heaven is what we might call atmospheric heaven. It's the sky and the clouds and the air that we breathe and the atmospheric pressure that, you know, controls a lot of our weather. It's the rain and the wind and I understand that the fullest part of our atmosphere is within 10 miles surrounding the earth. Uh, the first 10 miles uh, is the richest of our atmosphere and so forth, but traces of our atmosphere can be found up to 300 miles out, and uh, there is no other known planet that has an atmosphere around it like ours does that enables us to breathe and to live and, and so on. And so that's, that's the first heaven, if you will. Uh, the second heaven is kind of the universe that we live in. It's uh, the planets, the stars, the galaxies. Uh, just this week, did you hear? Uh, there was an announcement by uh, astronomers that they've found 19 galaxies past the Milky Way. You know, uh, just the vastness of the universe in which we live. The second heavens, you know. And so, uh, people ask every once in a while, well, well, what's, what's with you know, the galaxies and all this. And I love this answer because Psalm 19 says it's all there, right? The heavens are there to declare what? The glory of God. Why does all that exist, all that stuff? People are always like, I wonder if there's more people on other planets and in other galaxies and so on. We don't know, right? But here, I'll tell you why it exists. It exists so that we can understand how great God really is. There are no limits, on what God's able to do. And uh, I think the second heaven, you know, is there to remind us of that, and it's kind of exciting. And you remember, uh, we learned, right, that when Jesus comes back, guess what? The sun and the moon is going to stop shining and shut the lights out in the heavens. The stars are going to fall, and against that black background, the glory of Jesus Christ and all of his glory is going to show up in the whole world, right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that's going to be our day. That's going to be our day. That's when we're going to shine. All of a sudden, we're going to say, yeah, this, I've been waiting for this. This is what I tried to tell you about. Why didn't you listen to me? Well, what do I do? Well, it's too late now. You know? And so, 
second heavens. Third heaven, there's a third heaven, right? And the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. Our Father, which art in heaven. The third heaven. In um, 2 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul says uh, he knows somebody, but he's really talking about himself in 2 Corinthians. And uh, he says he was transported all the way up into the third heaven. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in my body or out of my body, I'm not sure. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter, Uh, and so on. So here's the Apostle Paul was given this experience of being transported to the third heaven in order that he might um, experience the very presence of God. And it's kind of exciting to think about it. The third heaven is a permanent place. And I just like to say that the third heaven where God is seated on his throne is just as real as the first heaven and the second heaven with which we are all familiar. And that the third heaven, even though we've never been there, is a place that's a permanent place that's as real as the first and second heaven. Uh, In fact, uh, to get into uh, that second heaven, we read in the Bible that you have to leave this temporary world and you even have to leave your temporary body. Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a metaphor for uh, death, right? Uh, I always like to tell this story, forgive me. Uh, When I was a kid, we used to go to Grandma's house every Sunday after church, and Grandma always had surprises for us. We always looked forward to, and my cousins and aunts and uncles, we'd all be there every Sunday we were there. And uh, inevitably, you know, the adults would get talking or whatever. I would fall asleep, and the next morning I'd wake up in my own bed, and I never knew quite how I got from Grandma's house into my house, right, because I was sound asleep as a kid. And, of course, my dad picked me up, carried me, put me in bed. And I think that's what death is really like. I think God comes. Jesus said, I'm preparing a place for you, and if I prepare a place, I'll come back and get you and bring you to where I am so that we can be together, right? And it's kind of like we're sleeping and we're picked up, and when we wake up, we wake up in a, at home uh, where our anchor is, Right? Anyway, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The gospel changes everything, right? Even death. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, listen to this, at the last trumpet. Remember uh, in Thessalonians, the trumpet blows, you know, the, the, uh, the, the dead are raised and the Christians follow. I mean, at the last trumpet, In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body of ours must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In order to go to that heaven, we have to shed this body and receive that new body uh, that God has prepared for us. I say that's the rapture uh, of the church. 
And uh, I love this uh, kind of a complimentary passage in Philippians. And uh, here Paul writes to this church, and he says this. He says, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our where's, where do we live? Where's our citizenship? What's our passport say? Well, the Bible says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Are you waiting for that day? You know? Um, You ever say to yourself, we are citizens of heaven on assignment to earth. We're not citizens on earth on our way to heaven we are citizens of heaven on assignment to earth. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors from heaven to earth. And we've been entrusted with the message of the gospel of reconciliation that God is willing to not hold people's sins against them and we get the privilege to run around the world and tell people, do I have some good news for you? You're a jerk. <laughs> but God forgives you. You know, we all know it anyway. How fun is it to tell somebody who's, you know, saying to you how bad they are and what they've done and just need somebody to talk to, and you get to say, oh, do I have good news for you? The God who made you will forgive you, wants to forgive you, wants you in heaven. He can get rid of your jerkiness, right? Christians who are anchored in the third heaven, I would say, hold more loosely to this life than those who are not. Uh, We have a totally different view of death. Uh, We think, hey, like Lazarus, as soon as we die, everything gets better. We go to be with Abraham. We hang out on Abraham's side in a great place called paradise and so forth. And so while Lazarus is in paradise, the rich man is in Hades, and uh, let me just go back there a couple of minutes for uh, in Luke chapter 16, kind of the end of the story here. Um, in verse uh, 27, the rich man is in Hades, a place called Hades. And by the way, that's the difference in the Apostles' Creed. The, the word is Hades. Some people interpret it as hell. Some people interpret it as the place of the dead, kind of a temporary holding place, kind of a prelude to hell. And, uh, you know, there's a debate about that and so on but in verse 27 this rich guy who's in Hades says all right then I beg you father Abraham to send Lazarus to my father's house I've got five brothers so that Lazarus could warn them lest they also come to this place of torment place of torment that's where the rich man was Uh, but Abraham said uh, well look they've got Moses and the prophets Let them listen to them. They've got the word of God. They've got a copy of the Bible, the Old Testament. Let them read and listen to what God says in God's word. God is speaking to them like he's speaking to the rest of the world. Why don't you let them listen? And of course, the rich guy says, oh no, Father Abraham, please, if somebody were to go to them from the dead, then they would get it and they would repent. Now you and I, we have both, right? We have the word of God, and we've had somebody come to us from the dead. Jesus Christ came to us from the dead, and still the world doesn't believe, you know? And so uh, Abraham says, um, 
Listen, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should even rise from the dead. Now, let me just make one thing clear, okay? The rich man didn't go to Hades because he was rich. And the poor man didn't go to Abraham's side because he was poor. Everything in the Bible tells us that um, the, we either go to heaven or to hell on the basis of our faith, whether our faith is in ourselves or it's in Jesus Christ. That's the difference between heaven and hell, right? You all know that. I think Jesus used this because he was talking, he was conscious of the crowd he was talking to who misinterpreted riches and poorness that don't get resolved perhaps until the other side. And of course the Pharisees just laughed at him and uh, made fun of him and so forth. Well, you know, there's so much in the Bible about heaven. Uh, let me just rattle off a couple things I wrote down. Um, we will literally be with Jesus. You know that song I can only imagine? Remember that song? Just, can you imagine what it would be like the very first time your eyes and Jesus' eyes lock on to each other? Can you imagine, we sang it this morning, right? When we see Jesus face to face, what's that gonna be like for you? To look in the eyes of Jesus who gave his life for us, because he loves us. And so the first thing about heaven is, you know, we're going to be with him. He's going to be there. Uh, the second thing about heaven that, you know, we could give all scripture references for this, but there's not going to be any problems in heaven. There's no negatives. There's no negatives in heaven. No death, no crying, no tears, you know, no sickness uh, and all of that. No problems in heaven. Uh, another thing, you know, we're going to be with other believers, our our loved ones, our grandparents, our parents, our children, our friends, you know, who have uh, died before us. Uh, we'll all have new bodies. Uh, that'll be imperishable and perfect, right? Uh, we're going to receive an inheritance, the Bible says, in heaven. You know, when you became a Christian, you became an heir with Jesus who owns everything. You might have your own Milky Way someday. Right? I mean, this is what the Bible tells us. We have an inheritance that's undefiled, reserved in heaven for us, no rust and so on. And we will receive rewards there. And this has to do with that reconciliation. If you sacrifice your life in this life because of the hope that you have for the future, you will be rewarded. There are five different crowns that are talked about that you know, are given to people for different efforts they've made over the course of their lifetime. And finally, I would say, we're going to be full of joy there. It's going to be fabulous the psalmist says you know in the in your presence is fullness of joy so if the lord's there we're gonna really have a good time i want to close by uh just reading you a portion of a letter this is a letter that was written to a pastor uh, by a guy who was a doctor who knew that he was dying and was going to die shortly <clears throat> and so here's what he wrote he said, I'm interested in heaven because I have had a clear title to a bit of property there for more than 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor who purchased it for me purchased it at a tremendous sacrifice. I am not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. And it is not a vacant lot. 
For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the great architect, the builder of the universe, has been holding a home for me there. A home which will never be remodeled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for the foundations rest on the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed on its doors because no vicious person can ever enter the land where my dwelling stands. Now almost completed and almost ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without any fear of being rejected. There is a valley, however, of deep shadows between the place where I live here in California and that to which I shall journey in a very short time. I cannot reach my home in the city of gold without passing through the dark valley of shadows. But I'm not afraid because the best friend that I ever had went through that same valley long, long ago and drove away all of its gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form that he will never forsake me and never leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of shadows, and I shall not lose my way when he's with me. My ticket to heaven has no date marked on it for the journey, and no return ticket, and no permit for any baggage. Yes, I am ready to go, and I may not be here while you're talking next Sunday, but I shall meet you over there someday. What a great letter. Well, uh, the difference between heaven and hell is the cross. And uh, we have an opportunity this morning again to celebrate what Jesus...